Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. I'm Panel Beater and I'm in the studio with um, my esteemed colleagues, Dr. Sharma and Neonatal. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. It's a, it's a nice way to, to wake up to be called esteemed. At yeah. o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. It's good. Esteemed or steamy. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> um, guys, we've got a huge show. Yeah. yeah. A lot of uh, seemingly disparate things to talk about, but they all, there's a link. There's a thread. Together. It's a thin thread, but it's a thread. It's a thread. We'll make it a thread. <laughs> um, Neonatal, you've had the week. Yes. Of, us, of us all, you've had capital T to capital W, the week. Tell yes. us about a week of exams. Uh, it was a um, a week that I'm very glad is done. Yeah, um, <laughs> So the, I had my medical exams, four of them, um, ranging from written exams to uh, like kind of oral discussion exams yeah. to what they call objective structured clinical exams or OSCEs. Uh, Say again, OSCEs. Oskies. Oskies. This, this is where they get the simulated patients in and you yeah, that's to, correct. You know, pretend to be the doctor. Yeah, you basically pretend, um, pretend to do your job uh-huh. and then have a few people watch and mark you. So it's all very scary and uh, under strict time regulations. And um, yeah. It is the scariest thing I have done. I, yeah. I have performed in front of hundreds, thousands of people. Nothing comes close <laughs> to the fear of walking in that door, having an examiner. The, 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 the actor patient and doing a thing for, for the six or ten minutes or whatever. Can yeah. you put your... I mean, exams are stressful. Whoever does exams, they're stressed. Can you put your finger on something about these particular exams that generates that kind of feeling that you're describing there? Is it... Do, do you think it's because it's medical and your brain is saying, hey, look, if I get this messed up, not only might I jeopardise my progress through my course, I'm actually going to end up doubting myself like whether I can actually do this career that I want. Absolutely. I mean, one of the compelling things about it is that the simulation is so realistic in a, in a mm. way. Um, and it's uh, intimidating. I think, I think you're sure you can attest to this neonatal, but it, it's at once a demonstration of your knowledge, but also a performance. Mm. It's both things. Both those things are scary enough to, yeah, do, right. to do them together under time pressure. Mm. I mean, so t- tell us a bit about uh, what the exams are actually on. Yeah, the yeah so they, they kind of uh, were our entire year's content, so things ranging from psychiatry to women's health to paediatrics, and you you're right. It's you know that it's a um, a simulated experience. So, but when you have a patient in front of you who's crying, um, <laughs> because that's their role, and you have to you have you know it's fake, but then you have to show your empathy as well as thinking about all of the other things that you need to get done in the seven minutes. Sorry to interrupt you there. I'm just reminding myself of something. Training Wheels told us about exams before. There's actually actors involved, right? Yeah, so they're paid actors. Yep. Um, and they all learn a script, and uh, they do a, like most of them do a really, yeah. really good job. Like you'll sit, you'll sit in there, and uh, there's this thing in psychiatry called transference, where it's you kind of. Um, Transference and counter-transference where the patient, um, you, you feel the patient's emotions almost and you feel uh, what they're experiencing. And you really do experience it in psychiatry when someone's quite depressed, you feel sad, or uh-huh. someone's quite anxious, you feel anxious. But these pa- these patients, fake patients, are able to express those emotions so 
vividly that you sit there and you're like, oh, I actually feel feel sad talking to this this fake. Uh, yeah, right. This yeah. fake actor. Yeah. Um, at some point during the exams, do you get to say things like, um, take two aspirin of pain persists, call me in the morning? Um, yeah, so that they at the, at the end they say, "What is your?" Often is it the the questions at the end are, "What is your diagnosis?" diagnosis. or "What is your management?" Um, and it's always a very uh, flustering experience, which I which was as simple as take two aspirin and call me in the morning. <laughs> How is that like graded? Like I'm used to applying yeah. rubrics to student essays and things like that uh, for something of that nature, where there's not obviously not just one answer yeah you know how is it graded so they have um they have a checklist that we're meant to go through we don't really know the checklist so it's a little bit um a little bit of trying to guess what guess what they're thinking uh and they try and make it as um as across the board as you can so because it's it's quite subjective you know all these people have different actors and different examiners uh and they have to try and make it as fair as possible so they have so they have points for saying, did you ask about this thing or did you ask about this? Or they also have questions for, uh, points for, did you introduce yourself? Did you take yeah. consent? Did you ensure follow-up? And these are things that are universally true no matter what the problem is. Mm-hmm. Um, in the GP exams, I think they're some of the best OSCE uh, things that are done. Like, if you don't know the diagnosis, it's okay. You can still pass because mm. just like in general practice, a lot of the time you don't know what, what the solution is. You get points for saying, I don't know, but I'll find out. Mm. Uh, please come see me, you know, in, in, in two days' time. So you might not get the maximum points, but... Uh, you but, can practice your referrals. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> there are good and way, bad ways to do that too. So. Hey, guys, um, we've got a, a jam-packed show. Coming up uh, later, we've got a, a conversation with Yuming Go from uh, an associate professor from uh, Monash University. He's going to talk to us about the relationship between climate change and uh, health in particular uh, nutrition and then um, uh, our second uh, guest of the morning is Dr Alicia Spittle Um, it happens to be uh, uh, National Prematurity Day um, dealing with all things neonatal so we're doubly lucky to have you here this morning uh, neonatal and you've just uh, done your exams on paediatrics exactly yeah Yeah, it's all tying in finally absolutely your exam's not over we'll get a quiz you This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. All right. News time, gentlemen. Um, geez, there's a lot going on with the fires. Oh, man. Uh, um, and uh, we've got, uh, as I mentioned, uh, Yuming Go coming up later on to talk about um, climate change. And the news angle at the moment is around climate change and its relationship to the fires that we're experiencing in Australia at the moment. From a radiotherapy point of view, we're really keen to understand what the health impact is and what are the health services being provided. Um, Dr. Sharma, something caught your eye. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so obviously a lot of the health assistance that's actually provided is by firefighters who are our first responders, uh, but the ambulance and paramedic services are the ones that have been quite busy from a, from a health perspective. Uh, actually, a significant number of the people who they're responding to are firefighters who are putting themselves uh, at risk. Mm. And so earlier in the week, uh, there were reports of New South Wales Ambulance having you know, 30-odd extra paramedic queues, two additional helicopters, fixed-wing aircraft. Uh, and also, a Victoria Ambulance has been coordinating with New South Wales Ambulance and the emergency uh, units as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and... 
the, the interesting thing is it's you'd think a lot of the time with with fires the, the risk is just the general exposure to, to, to the heat and the smoke inhalation and and obviously the burns and, and fractures and things that occur as well um, but there have been hundreds of calls uh, relating I suppose to air quality uh, there have been debris all over the place there's winds there's dust storms and until the south uh, southeasterly changes come, they don't really settle down. Mm. So the New South Wales government has put out call-outs to people who've got diseases like asthma or mm. COPD, emphysema, heart mm. issues, to stay indoors and not to exert themselves and have their medication on hand. Uh, they've received hundreds of calls from people who are, who are experiencing problems with their breathing. Yeah. Um, it, it astounds me what the um, impact uh, on services would be. I mean... I reckon in those communities, they're already stretched on their medical services. You know, we know that rural and regional Australia is desperate for medical practitioners, whether they be GPs or specialists, whatever, they're already stretched. Mm. So throw on a catastrophe like a fire onto the demands of those services. And um, the stress on the on the doctors, the nurses, the, the hospitals, the clinics must be enormous. It's enormous. And I'll speak of this in as anonymous a way as I can, uh, but one of the hospitals experienced a doubling in their number of uh, respiratory, airway, breathing-related kind of call assets, uh, complaints uh, that they normally would get from patients. It's also a hospital, I know for a fact, that is generally speaking ranked quite low in mm. terms of its ability to, to, to provide services because it's just so overstretched. Mm. So that's just a you know, kind of really tough one for them. Yeah. Um, Neonatal, you mentioned uh, something caught your eye about um, the trauma and the stress involved for yeah. the firefighters. Yeah, so uh, with such a massive um, with a massive experience such as a bushfire that we probably have, haven't have seen for 20 plus years, we you expect some sort of trauma response and some sort of um, PTSD from the actual uh, fire. But a study from quite a few years ago actually caught my eye um, was looking at the effects of PTSD in uh, firefighters who are either seasonal or full-time. And it showed that the full-time firefighters had 70% uh, lower probability of having PTSD uh, than those who were seasonally employed. That is fascinating. What's the, what's the explanation for that distinction? So it's, um, it looks like that the ones who are seasonally employed just don't have that same... Um, uh, mental ability or mental or more tr more training in that kind of uh, way of processing trauma that they and they're probably less supported as well mm. uh, they go to the fire they go home that's it whereas the ones who are you know full-time employees may have people to debrief with they may have a uh, a very well-structured debriefing program that uh, these these firefighters who just do it on an occasional basis basis don't have i wonder if there's a degree of desensitization too if you are in in touch with these fairly traumatizing events on a regular basis it forces you to perhaps kind of confront and come to terms with these things which you might not if you've only got kind of partial exposure um and you know, considering the fact that so much of the fire services in australia are actually volunteer-led of people who are doing things sporadically, uh, it kind of heightens that risk, I suppose. Mm. We're probably about uh, 12, 18 months out from, you know, pretty intense debates in Victoria about the um, the parallel services between the volunteer fire services mm. and the paid permanent services. And it's moments like this where, you know, from the distance that we are, you know, we're not 
on the front line, obviously. We, we, we then do wonder, okay, so how are the volunteers being supported with training mm. prior to the emergency? How are they being supported during the emergency? And then, as you're pointing out, the, uh, mm. the follow-up. And it's been shown with PTSD that you, after a traumatic event, even if you're just offered counselling, doesn't matter if you take it up, if you're just offered it, then uh, you have a, a lower chance of getting the, the effects of PTSD in the coming months. Um, and it, you really have to wonder if the, the firefighters in New South Wales are being offered enough counselling services because there's just so, so much trauma being experienced by the community, the firefighters and everyone around them. And for heaven's sakes, it's only November. We've got mm. another four or five months of craziness. That's the big yeah. worry. And we're also now worried about the West Coast. Yeah. Um, it, they seem like they're in for a shocker as well. Dear, oh dear. Um, well, let's keep an eye on that. Um, we might even maybe have an idea of trying to get somebody in from the, the fire mm. services to talk about it. It might be um, well worth, worth um, speaking to them when they get a moment. <laughs> um, Dr. Sham, just before we go to our first guest... Um, Another news item uh, came up during the week about a response to an attempt to link the banning of logging and mental health. Yeah, this was fascinating to me uh, because this uh, the cry for uh, you know, help for mental health came from a source I don't typically expect. So this week in uh, state parliament, opposition has accused the Andrews government of putting timber workers' lives at risk. Um, so the state government announced last week they're going to transition to a plantation-only timber industry over the next 10 years, but that includes an immediate ban on logging of uh, old-growth for- old forests. Uh, so the government set aside you know, a lot of money to support that change because, as you can imagine, eventually there's going to be you know, loss of jobs in that industry, I suppose. And so during question time, the deputy leader of the state Liberal Party asked a, I thought it was a morose but quite interesting question, what percentage of this package would go towards uh, supporting affected workers' mental health? And she stayed, uh, quoted timber contractors saying that there will be suicides <laughs> as a result of this transition. Now, I really kind of want to get into you know, the pros and cons of, uh, of of this policy. It's kind of far away from my expertise. But it really made me think a lot about how framing things as a mental health issue in terms of suicides can it can be quite a, I don't want to say double-edged sword, but a really complicated matter. Yeah. Um, we often medicalise things in this way. Uh, I know, certainly for a lot of issues that I'm really passionate about, I do this all the time. Whereas when I read this, I had this reaction within me of, oh, using the language of mental health against, hang on, no, no, this is just being used against something that I tend to agree with. It's my bias. I think I see where you're going with this in part, Dr Sharma. It really gets on my goat when mental health is treated by, let's say, politicians or other um, activists of various varieties where they use it as a device, a strategic device to deal with policy. Mental health is not something to play with. You know, it's such a serious issue and from, you know, policy point of view, from services point of view, from funding point of view, that when we hear politicians like the one you're referring to, can't help but think, hang on, this is overstretch here. Sure, mental health is relevant mm. and an issue, um, but if you're going to start throwing a words around like suicide and things like that, you want to be really careful um, about what you're doing. Exactly, yeah, and yeah, this is just the the danger when yeah when you frame things like that constantly. If that's the uh, the the framing you resort to, you end up with this incredibly utilitarian yeah. kind of view that's very simplistic, very yeah. black and white. Yeah. And you start reducing everything down to that, well, you're not going to get very far in any debate. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. 
To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Yes, we have our guest on the line, Radiotherapy and Triple R, with uh, panel beta Dr. Sharma and a neonatal. Um, Dr. Yuming, Associate Professor Yuming Gar, are you on the phone there? Oh, yes, I'm here. It's great to have you with us. Now, you're leading a research team that's looking at the connection between uh, climate change and, uh, and health generally, but uh, nutrition specifically. Can you give us, just set the scene for, for us with uh, the attention your research team is uh, giving? Uh, okay. Uh, recently, we just published a paper to look at uh, the relationship between hot temperature in summer and uh, hospitalization for undernutrition. Uh, why we wanted to do this? That is because, you know, the climate change is uh, very serious and it will impact the food security. security. And in the future, climate change will be more and more serious. And the people with undernutrition might be affected by the hot temperature, but there is no evidence. So we aim to look at this issue. Uh, so uh, we used uh, national data from Brazil to look at the relationship between hot temperature and uh, undernutrition. We found that um, every one degree increase of temperature, there was a uh, uh, 2.5% increase in the number of uh, hospitalizations for undernutrition. And particularly, the impact is... Uh, uh, very higher for elderly and uh, children. So this is uh, very serious. Really? And, and so that was specifically in relation to nutrition. So what kind of... So nutrition can have effect on our health in a number of ways. Were, was there something in particular about the nutrition deficits that uh, with the populations that you were looking at? Uh, for this study, we look at we only look at the hospitalizations for undernutrition. We don't look at uh, the undernutrition related uh, uh, diseases. Uh huh. Uh, is there any particular reason why you chose Brazil? Uh, that is, you know, Brazil is a very uh, special country. It is a developing country, and uh, it has uh, different uh, climate zones. For example, it has uh, tropic zone and uh, subtropical, and uh, some of them have. Uh, Overlap, uh, overlap climate zones with Australia and uh, some other countries, and also the economic is uh, uh, is still growing. Uh, so this is very specific environment. So we wanted to look at the the the, the impact of climate change on the uh, on the population health in Brazil. Which I suppose makes a lot of sense, Doctor, because uh, I suppose it's those developing countries who are going to be most at risk for, from climate change-related harms. It was also interesting you mentioned so that it crosses over so a, a few, I suppose, climate boundaries, so to speak. So does that mean that because it's got a, a more varied climate, uh, it allows you to, I guess, control for those variables a bit better? Oh uh, Yes, you know, different areas have different impacts. For example, the low socioeconomic areas has... Uh, uh, the higher impact of uh, hot temperature. Right. Is, uh, you you um, made a point of saying that the impact was most notable with the very young and the very old. Can you just talk to that a little bit more? Oh, yes, you know, because uh, for the young people, you know, their um, body is still developing. That means, you know, this is uh, uh, very vulnerable for... Uh, from the hot temperature or heat waves. And uh, for the very elderly people, because, you know, uh, uh, their 
body sometimes uh, you know they have reduced the function to uh, bear the hot temperature. Mm. That means you know both both groups of people are very sensitive to hot temperature. So, Doctor, so what's the? I guess we're all tr- trying to wrap our heads around an explanation, I suppose, for why all this is happening. So, the the in terms of the short term heat exposure, and you know, it leading to this undernutrition that causes hospitalizations. What's I suppose is the the link you guys have, are thinking of in terms of the heat exposure and the undernutrition? Like, how's mm. that happening? How that happening? There should be um, several pathways. For example, the first one is. Uh, uh, people might reduce their appetites, so they don't want to eat food during the very hot uh, temperature days. And also, the other one is the, uh, the hot temperature might provoke uh, more uh, alcohol consumption because, you know, from our experience, you know, when you are uh, experiencing very hot temperature, you want to drink more, drink more alcohol or beer. And also, uh, because the temperature is very hot, you don't want to go outside. So you don't want to go shopping or don't want to cook. So that means uh, you will eat less food or have less uh, social uh, social activities. Also, um, the hot temperature might worsen uh, people, a uh, person's already impaired digestion and uh, absorption by increasing, you know, the gastrointestinal morbidity. And mm. also hot, hot temperature is also related to the, the, um, the impaired uh, thermal regulation. So that means your body can't uh, regulate um, regularly as, uh, as normal because uh, the hot temperature has uh, already influenced uh, your thermal regulation. So, um, Doctor, why do you think the lower socioeconomic um, people of Brazil were more vulnerable to this kind of um, heat stress and heat-related illness? The socioeconomic is a very important factor for, um, for, for, for many health, uh, human health-related uh, issues. For example, uh, lower socioeconomic, that means they don't have enough money to, uh, to install air conditioning and to, to use... Uh, uh, the electricity, and also they don't have enough money to uh, buy food or something else. And all, and also, you know, socio- low, lower socioeconomic, uh, socioeconomic status is also related to the higher prevalence of uh, chronic diseases. This is mm-hmm. also a big problem for the uh, climate and, uh, and human health. So that's not just a problem in Brazil, but that's a problem here in Australia as well. Oh, that is also, yeah, that is for every country, not only Brazil. Can you just um, return to the link that you're making between climate change and this issue in comparison with just heat in general and this issue? Um, your point's well made that um, in higher temperatures, you know, people aren't as active and they may neglect to keep themselves well-fed and, and hydrated and so on. Um, but you're quite specifically saying that the trend in climate climate change, specifically warming in this case, um, is nutrition-related. Could you just extend on that a little bit more? Of course, you know, because uh, climate change is not only affected uh, on the nutrition. It is also directly uh, related to the cardiovascular disease, respiratory disease. And also, climate change is related to air pollution. You know, for example, 
just these two days, New South Wales and Queensland, there there are serious bushfires. You know, that's is directly related to climate change. So that means in the future, the bushfires will be more and more frequency. And the bushfire is related to human health. We have done a lot of work to look at air pollution and human health. So climate change is a broad range, has a broader range of uh, impact on human health, not only on the nutrition and not only heat, but also the other um, other uh, disease conditions and also other climate change related issues like bushfire, flood, mm. um, and also uh, drought. Yeah. There are many, 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 many problems. Yeah, that's a that's a really powerful point with um, showing, I think, just how wide climate change will impact our future generations. I think a lot of people do focus on things like undernutrition and the big things like bushfires, but uh, I think showing just the the effect of rising global temperatures uh, is a very powerful point that I think a lot of our politicians should be listening to. So, yes. Sorry, Dr. Sharma? Yeah, so I had a question for you, Doctor. So uh, uh, if I'm reading correctly, so there was a 2.5% uh, increase in hospitalizations uh, with a 1-degree rise in actual temperature. So how during the duration of this study, how much of a rise in temperature was there on average? Uh, the average, the standard deviation of the temperature is uh, about 4.5 degrees. Right. And so I suppose in terms of the trend of, uh, of mean temperature rises because of climate change, I mean, are you going to be, I suppose, make predictions, extrapolations about what the, what the future of, of Brazil's hospitalizations because of climate change might be? Uh, yes, this is our plan. We will do that in the future, uh, in the near future. We have already done some work to look at uh, the future temperature and uh, mortality using a global database, including Brazil. And Australia, we have found that you know, if 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 government don't take any action to reduce the impact of climate change, there will be a huge increase of mortality related to heat waves and hot temperature uh, throughout uh, the uh, the world in any country. Now, doctor, um, I just have your study here. I'm just, it says that. Um, for this, the study, you covered nearly 80% of the Brazilian population during a 15-year window. And I've just done a quick Google. Uh, the Brazilian population is 209 million. That must have been a massive amount of data. How big was the um, the study itself? Yeah, you know, big data is very important to answer the real-world real world evidence and to provide the real-world real evidence to the government. So... We get this data for, from from Brazil uh, government to do some work to support their decision how to mitigate climate change and how to do the climate change adaptation and to protect human health. This data is very big, so uh, we we used uh, two state analysis. The first data is to get the effect estimate for each city, and then we. We use meta-analysis to pull the city-specific effect estimates to get the national and uh, regional level uh, effect estimate. So we can we can target each city and each region. So the local government and the regional government can take action uh, using this precision evidence. 
Um, Dr. Go, our time's getting away from us, so we're coming to a coming to an end. But before we um, lose you, I um, wonder where you see your research supporting uh, policy direction on this. Um, would you, in some way, um, prioritise uh, the aspect of of um, food security as the issue, or are you? Do you think this points more to the services that are provided to uh, lower socioeconomic um, citizens? Uh, for this study, we can't provide direct evidence for the uh, food security, but we can provide the evidence for government yep. to protect the uh, people with other nutrition. Uh, for example, this would uh, put more uh, effort to look after this uh, this kind of population and uh, provide more gui- um, guidelines for the local community to look after these people. Yeah. We've um, we've got to bring the uh, the conversation to a close. It's been great speaking with you. I'm sure this won't be the last time that we um, that we talk about uh, climate change and uh, and health. Um, and as you reminded us, and we spoke off at the top of the show, you know, the fires up in New South Wales um, uh, is just one part of the story, and the, and there's a lot of health related issues there. Um, so we really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you very much. This is a podcast from Triple R an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Now we've got a second special guest for the uh, the morning, and it is Professor... Uh, Alicia Spittle. Um, Dr. Spittle is a um, physiotherapist and senior researcher at the University of Melbourne who leads the murder team of Victorian Infant Brain Studies Group at Murdoch Children's Research Institute. She's a current recipient of an NHMRC Career Development Fellowship and, career, and chief investigator of several of the NHMRC funded studies which aim to improve the outcomes of children who are born preterm or sick at birth. Uh, in addition to her research, she works clinically in the neonatal intensive care unit and uh, intensive care unit and follow-up clinic at the Royal Women's Hospital and as a lecturer in paediatrics at the University of Melbourne. Um, we wonder if she's ever crossed paths with <laughs> neonatal. Um, Dr. Spittle, are you there? I am. Did Thank we get all of that right? Did we miss anything? Yeah. You did. No, you got everything. Thank you very much. <laughs> Can we just start with a little bit of your profile? Can you just give us a, a sense of uh, what it is, what all of those qualifications and uh, job descriptions actually mean for you? Well, for me, I've been working in this area for about 15 years now. And as you said, I'm a physiotherapist. But um, over this time, I've really expanded my interest into looking at um, parent mental health and the relationship between babies' development um, and their bond with parents and how we can help parents with their babies' development and particularly for those um, children who are born premature, which is the main group we work with, these um, relationships can be altered and over the last 15 years, as I said, we've been doing various um, different studies looking at how we can improve outcomes, not only for babies born early, but for um, families as well and I'm quite lucky in that I'm a researcher but I also get to work clinically with families at the Royal Women's Hospital so it's really nice that we've got that integration between education which I heard you talking about before earlier in terms of medical education and physiotherapy education but also in terms of contact with families and then research as well. 
Now, Professor, you mentioned uh, that you're working with babies born early. Roughly how early were you talking? Uh, so any baby who's born at less than seven weeks gestation is considered preterm, but we're now seeing babies survive as early as 22 weeks gestation. Our research has mostly focused on babies who are born very preterm, so less than 32 weeks, but all babies born preterm some increased risk of developmental problems and parents are also at risk of um, mental health problems as well. And so specifically you seem you're working as part of the MOTA team. Uh, what exactly does that mean? Uh, so we're, we are a very much a multidisciplinary team. My team within the Victorian Infants Brain Study is looking at uh, movement development, which is what we're referring to with MOTA and also physical activity of children and adults who are born them, but we very much work together. So even though I'm leading the motor stream, I work very closely uh, with psychologists looking at parent mental health and also paediatricians, neuroscientists looking at brain development. We work together on a whole range of causes. Right, and I'm also just quite fascinated because a physiotherapist is not the first, you know, kind of, I suppose professional would have come to my mind in terms of people working in a neonatal intensive care unit. And uh, so, and I mean, looking a bit more into your work, and you've talked a lot about, I suppose, early intervention for these children. Um, how, how does that work? Well, in your role, I suppose, as a clinician and physiotherapist, like, uh, what is this kind of input you can have at that level? Yeah, that's a question I often get asked. What is the role of physiotherapy with young babies? But as you can imagine, these babies are very small. They're often looked after in a an incubator or a cot where it's very difficult for families to actually touch their babies and handle their babies. So we work with families very early on about understanding their baby's behaviour, how they can interact with their babies, how they can handle their babies to encourage development. And then as they develop and leave the hospital, we work um, very closely with families looking at babies' early development. Often motor problems can be one of the first signs of a developmental problem with babies. So we look at early movements and I've got a particular focus of looking for um, at cerebral palsy as well, so identifying cerebral palsy early so that we can start intervention early. Uh, Dr Spittle, I wonder if you could just um, remind us, what's the prevalence of prematurity um, in Australia? Uh, are we, is it, would we call it common? So in Australia, 27,000 babies are born preterm each year, which is about 8.6% wow. of birth. So whilst um, it might not seem common, that's uh, worldwide we're looking at 1 in 10 babies who are born preterm. Right. In Australia, we've got a great healthcare system, so the rate is slightly lower, but it really is quite high. And the chances of um, you knowing someone or someone or you, the people themselves having a preterm um, baby really is quite high. And how much do we know about uh, correlations and causality with PREM? Uh, in terms of correlations, uh, if I just start with focusing on um, mental health, we know that with preterm babies that parents have higher rates of mental health problems. Research that we've done at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and University of Melbourne has shown that uh, both mothers and fathers or partners of babies born preterm have around um, 50% will show signs of anxiety or depression over uh, the first few years after a preterm birth. And we also know that um, through work done by the Miracle Babies Foundation that around 83% of families will um, suffer from increased financial stress with preterm birth as well. And why do you think they're struggling with increased financial stress? 
Uh, so one of the things um, that we're actually calling for today, and I'm sure we can talk about more in a moment, is that at the moment paid parental leave in Australia is the same for any baby, whether they're born at term or preterm. And what we're seeing is babies who are born preterm, so as I said, they could be born four weeks early, but they could be born months early, is that parents start using their paid parental leave as soon as their baby is born. But if your baby's in hospital for weeks or months, by the time you go home, they've run out of paid parental leave. So they're using a lot more leave than they need to, but there's also increased financial costs of having to travel into hospital, potentially both and fathers or partners having to take time off work or returning to work uh, early. Or the other thing that we see with babies who are born preterm is that they might not be able to go to childcare as early as other children because they're at increased risk of um, catching a cold or a virus. So parents then need to look after them at home, which again comes with increased childcare, uh, increased costs. And if you don't have extra paid parental leave, these um, families are having to do this by themselves with no... Um, Dr Spitter, one of the reasons we're speaking with you particularly today is, and I neglected to mention as we introduced you, it is in fact World Prematurity Day. Um, And you and uh, a a whole lot of colleagues are paying attention to the legislation and policy that uh, sits around um, services towards uh, supporting parents who deal with these situations. What specifically are you looking at in that regard? Yeah, so uh, we've got a centre of research in newborn medicine and we're partnering with the Miracle Babies Foundation to campaign the government to review their current legislation. So what we want to see is that for every week a baby's born preterm, that parents get an extra week of leave. So that's um, the primary caregiver, which in most cases is the mother, but we also want to call for extra leave for fathers or partners because at the moment current um, paid parental leave means that fathers or partners only get an extra two weeks of leave. And really, if you've got a baby uh, in the hospital and the mother's in the hospital, there's a huge load on the other caregiver, not only um, to hold things together um, for the family in the hospital, but also potentially at home. So it's really important that we support both mothers and fathers or partners in increased time to spend with the babies, not only at home, but also, um, also in the hospital. What's your sense um, with the with the policy climate around this? Are, you, uh, are our politicians receptive to to this at the moment? Look, we've only just started campaigning. Interestingly, New Zealand, um, of course, is a very progressive country. Introduced this legislation uh, last year, and it's gone through parliament. And in the UK, they're currently also reviewing their legislation, and the government's got policy review happening uh, right now so we're really optimistic that the Australian government should be able to do something about this it um, isn't a huge number of babies we're looking at around a five percent increase in the amount that's spent on paid parental leave so uh, we really hope that the government comes to the party and starts reviewing um, what's happening with paid parental leave here in Australia um what uh, you mentioned a moment ago, uh, the um, uh, the Miracle Babies Foundation. Can you tell us a bit more about them and where people can find more information? Sure. So the Miracle um, Babies Foundation was started by uh, parents who had babies themselves who were born early. They've got a fantastic website, which is www.miraclebabies.org, and you can get um, resources um, from their website on preterm birth, not only for people who have preterm babies themselves, but also for family and friends who want to know how to support um, their 
family or friend who has had a baby born preterm. They also do a lot of peer support, so supporting families while they are in hospital as well, and a lot of campaigning to raise awareness of premature birth because it is something many people don't think happen to them, and then when it does, it's such a shock, and we really need to be supporting families and, and their primary um, focus is supporting families who have babies who are born preterm but also sick around the time of birth. Thanks so much, Dr. Spittle. We'll make sure we put um, those links up on our social media um, after the show and uh, direct people to that that information. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you and thanks for um, drawing our attention to the issues at hand. Thank you very much for your time. Have a great day. Bye for now. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.